If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 14. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section, called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes. And he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he, has offered, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you right now. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for its just perfectness, Father. God, we thank you, Father, for just the power that it has in our lives. Father, Lord, I thank you, Father, this morning, Lord, that I don't have to come up with anything on my own, but, Father, God, I just lean heavily on what you give us, Father, here in your scriptures. God, this morning, Lord, I pray, God, that we could have an understanding of what the author of Hebrews is trying to teach us here. Lord, what is it that you're saying to us in this chapter? God, I pray, Lord, that we would all have open ears and open hearts to receive what you have from, for us this morning. God, I pray right now that you would empty me of myself and fill me with your spirit, Father God, to deliver this message not from me, but from you. Lord, we ask all these things in your son's holy name. And everyone said, amen. As I mentioned before, I had prepared a message and it was, I thought, really good and I really liked it. And then I realized that I had missed what the author's main point is here. 
And the reason doing so is I started reading verses 1 through 5, and I started to realize just how beautiful this setup of the temple, or tabernacle, uh, had been set up. And all the things in it, and how it pointed to Christ in so many different ways. And then I got to verse 5, and the author says, Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So the purpose of him saying all this stuff was not to just go into detail about how this tabernacle was set up. But I encourage you that if you have never studied the tabernacle or studied the temple, how that was all set up and how that all points to Christ, I do not believe that my study was worthless because, man, was it awesome to see how God had set up the earthly temple and how each aspect of it, down to the very detail, pointed back to Christ. But that's not the point the author wanted to drive home in this passage. He wanted to talk about how this all pointed back to Christ and how this temple showed us our need for a Savior. So I've titled this message, The Cleansing of the Conscience. And I've broke this down into three different areas. It's the same three points that you guys have there. First one, the restricted area. Second, a limited priest. And thirdly, a welcoming Savior. And for the first section here, I want to talk about the restricted area. So I do want to talk about the temple a little bit this morning, but I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it. But I do want us to kind of look at this little uh, diagram here of how the temple, the earthly tabernacle, was set up. If you look right here, turn this on. If you look right here, these little, this little rectangle right here, this big black bar, that was the tent. It was kind of like this tent set up. Uh, for the tabernacle, and then anything outside of here was called the outer courts, the outer courtyard, all right? And in the outer courtyard is where most people could go, but you still had to be ceremonially cleansed or clean, or, you know, clean to walk into this outer courtyard, but pretty much anybody who was deemed clean could come in, which was a majority of the people. And out there, we had the altar of sacrifice, the laver that they would wash their hands with, okay? So this is where the people would go to offer their sacrifices. But inside the larger tent existed this blue line here, which was a kind of a smaller tent. And as we see here, Anyone, pretty much anyone, was welcome in here to the outer courts. But to get into the holy place, which was right here, you had to be a priest. All right, so we see restrictions. We see limitations already being placed upon where people could go. All right, and in the holy place, we see a couple different things. We see the candlestick over here, which is called the menorah, okay, which is where they kept the candles lit. There's seven candles that they had lit here. And then the table of shrew bread, which was the bread of presence that it mentions there in the first five verses, and then right here was the altar of incense. This is where the priests would go and make their uh, offering and sacrifices. So the priests were allowed into the holy place. And then we have this big, giant blue line right here, and that was the veil. This is the curtain that we refer to several different times that separated the holy place and the most holy place. So anyone could come into this section. Only the priests were allowed into the holy place, and only the high priest was allowed to go past the veil into the most holy place, or as we just sang, the holy of holies. And only the priest was allowed in there one time per year. And that was after several different cleansing and sacrifices made upon his part. 
But the point of this is, and you can see then the holy places where the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, this is where God's presence uh, was or represented here in the uh, temple. All right? Now, like I said, if you go and study all of this and all of this, the candlestick, the bread of presence, the altar, the veil, all of this stuff, it points to Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to study. Kids and people that were at the camp out, Amanda went through this, and it was, a, it was awesome just to hear how all of this stuff was set up and ultimately pointed to Christ. But this morning, I don't want to spend our time on that, even though my first sermon had about 15 minutes just on that. This morning, I want to talk about the reason why he brings up all of these restrictions. The first thing he says there is, I had regulations. Anyone was welcome here, some were welcome here, and only one was welcome here. So many regulations, so many restrictions that the people had when it came to worship. They were not allowed into certain places. These restrictions ultimately show us that we are separated from God. Do we understand that God's holy presence, we read in Scripture all the time about how God's presence, God's being was so holy that we could not even look at it, we couldn't even be in the presence of it because of our sin. Because of how defiled we were, we could not enter into the presence of God or we would be struck dead right there. So one thing that I want to make sure we understand this morning is that in the tabernacle, in the midst of everything that's going on there, the biggest thing that it shows us is that we are separated from God. There's this chasm, this, bri- this gap that exists between us. There's no way to God, and what separates us is sin. If we remember back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had what with God? They had communion with God. They were with God, presence with God. They were with God, walking with God, hand in hand in the Garden of Eden. And then sin came in, and ultimately they were kicked out of the garden, which then separated them from God. And today we see that same separation for the sinner and God. The sin that exists in our lives is what separates us from God. So this restricted area that he spends these first five verses talking about here, to sum it all up, basically says we can't access God. The people at this time, the Jews at this time, yeah, they could go into the outer courtyard, but that was it. That was it. They could not access the presence of God. Separation existed. So therefore, we needed somebody to go in our place, to go offer the sacrifices for our sins that we've committed, and then that's when the priests come in. The priests enter into the holy place in order to offer sacrifices on our behalf. So we see a restricted area, and now we see limited priests. See, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the weaknesses and ultimately the uselessness of the Levitical priesthood. These men were sinful beings. They could not even access all of what the tabernacle had to offer because they themselves were sinful. So even if we said the priests have a little bit more of access to God, They really didn't. 
All they got to do was go into the holy place. But God was here. It was still separation with the veil. So even the priests who we trusted, who the Jews trusted to go forth in their place to offer sacrifices, couldn't bridge that gap. It says in here that they regularly go and perform rituals and religious duties. Regularly. This was something, as they went into the holy place, that they had to do over and over and over again. They had to continue to light the candle. They had to continue to replace the bread. They had to continue to make sacrifices. Why? Because sin was still present. They couldn't get rid of it. Yes, they could do what they had to do to be cleansed or to cleanse the people from their sins, but ultimately they had to keep doing that because Sin still existed. They could not eradicate sin. And even that, they couldn't even do this under their own power. Even the high priest could not enter in to the holy of holies or the most holy place until he offered a sacrifice for himself and went through the cleansing process that he would have to do. So even the high priest, who we were trusting to go into the presence of God, had to sacrifice for himself just like he had to sacrifice for us. And if he didn't do that, when he would open up the veil and enter into the Holy of Holies, if he wasn't cleansed, he would die. So even under their own power, they couldn't bridge that gap. And ultimately, the point I want to bring out this morning is because of all this, because of their limitless, limitlessness, they could not perfect the worshiper's conscience. This phrase, perfect the conscience of the worshiper, is important here because it gives us a deeper understanding of what is actually taking place in the ridding of sin. See, sin brought forth Judgment. Judgment brought forth death. Death for eternity is what the wages of sin bring about. And it was in this death that was, a, that was basically coming to the sinner that made them feel this guilt of that they were sinning against God, therefore judgment was upon them. And the problem was, under the Old Covenant, they trusted these priests to take care of their biggest problem. They had to place their trust in a sinful human being. So even though they would come forth and bring a sacrifice, even though the priests would go through the whole process, even though this process was set up by God, it was weak. But it did not, it was, did not exist without purpose. Because what happened is they went through, and they went through all this process, they offered their sacrifice, and they left. Their conscience was still yet perfected. 
Because when they left, imagine the thoughts that would have been going through their mind. Am I saved? Did I sacrifice enough? Did the priest do exactly what he was supposed to do in order to enter into the Holy of Holies? Is my sin paid for? These are thoughts that would be present as long as the Old Covenant, the first section, as long as this part existed, as long as this part existed, that was going to be their conscience until it was vanished. They would have to constantly be worried about their sin and the guilt that their sin brought because it could not be eradicated through the Holy place. Imagine that process. And the thing that we take away here in looking at the weakness of the Levitical priest in when we're talking about the weakness of the Levitical priest, and when I mean that, I mean that in the process of atoning for sins, they were weak. They were useless in that. So in that process, we just we just look here at the inability of the priest to provide assurance of faith. As the priest went forward and delivered this sacrifice, they could not guarantee to the worshiper that their sins had been paid for. There was no assurance of their salvation because they weren't even assured of their own. So the tabernacle shows the separation that we have from God and the Levitical priesthood shows the inability of us to overcome that separation on our own. One commentator says that the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is that the Old Covenant indicated not yet. Verse 8 says, By this... The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So as long as the priests had to keep making sacrifices on behalf of the people, the veil in the holy place was still going to be inaccessible to us. The presence of God was still going to be unattainable for us to walk into. As long as this part still existed. So the not yet that the writer in Hebrews is talking about here is referring to the sinner's inability to obtain perfection and eradicate sin completely. So until sin was taken care of right here completely, they could not enter into the presence of God. They could not enter into the presence of God until sin was completely taken care of. And what the Levitical priesthood shows us is that there was no way for man to bridge that gap under their own ability. Because man, from the very beginning of time, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, sin stained man forever. Separation from God was there. And it needed to be taken care of before our sins could be paid for. 
Now, if I ended my message right there, we'd all leave pretty beat up, right? We'd all leave pretty, oh man, pretty just discouraged. I'm separated for God from God. There's no way to pay for my sins. There's no way for me to walk in the freedom and the life that God has offered. I can continue to offer sacrifices. I can continue to do all the things that would ultimately nearly just change the outside. And we would have no freedom, no perfection of conscience because we would constantly be thinking to ourselves, am I saved? Have I done good today? Have I done what I'm supposed to do today? Have I read my Bible? Have I prayed? Have I went to church? Imagine all of these things that go through our mind that we think we have to do in order to be saved. And if we forgot to do it this day, then we could look back on that day and think, oh man, I didn't do that today. But that's not what it was about. In the old covenant, we're left in this state of separation from God, trusting on sinful, incapable men to atone for our sins, which ultimately just cleanses the outside but leaves us a guilty conscience on the inside. But when Christ appeared, all that changed. All that changed. I have a question this morning. You probably never heard a pastor say this before. But do you ever take time and thank God for all the buts that we see in Scripture? Now hear me out. One of my favorite buts in all of Scripture comes from Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. And it says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That sums up exactly what I just talked about. If I gave you those verses and stopped right there, we would have no hope, we would have no assurance, we would have no future in anything because we are sons of disobedience. We are children of wrath. We are sinners. But what does the next verse say? But. But. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Imagine if that but did not exist. Imagine if the but in verse 11 that we're reading today did not exist. Imagine if we were still under the old covenant and we would still have to go through this process of offering sacrifices to these sinful men to go offer our sacrifice after they offered their sacrifice so that one person once a year could go into the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of the world. It doesn't work. But it says, but when Christ appeared... Oh, but when Christ appeared. 
as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Do we understand that all of this right here, all of this right here, this entire picture of the tabernacle is solely just an earthly picture of a heavenly throne room. For man, priests could enter the holy place and priests could enter into the holy, most holy of holies once a year. But in heaven, there's a greater tabernacle, a greater throne room. And in heaven, that heavenly temple, Christ proceeded right through the outer courts. He went into the holy place. He went past the brazen altar, for he was already perfect. He tore the curtain in two. He shed his own blood on the mercy seat, paying once and for all the debt for our sins, therefore eradicating sin completely. Bridging the gap between man and God and then sat down at the right hand of the Father because the work was finished. And because the work was finished, he now sits at the right hand throne of God forever interceding for us on our behalf. And because of that, we're deemed righteous and innocent before the throne. And because of that, now we, as we mentioned before, Christ, our forerunner, going before us, tearing the curtain in two, now we, through the righteousness of Christ and the blood that he has poured upon us, get to enter into the presence of our creator. Thought maybe I'd get a little bit more of a roar from people on that, but that's all right. Brothers and sisters, may your soul and your conscience rest easy for the believer here this morning because your debt has been paid. Your debt has been paid. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood. Through his blood. For the forgiveness of sins according to his riches of his grace. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. No more separation, but we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you understand the significance of that this morning? Do you understand the significance of the weight of your sin being lifted off of your shoulders and placed on to Christ who went in your place to bridge that gap so that you may walk with God forever? Do you understand that the guilt and the shame, the, the, conscious, the, the guilt of our conscience that just weighs upon us thinking about all the sin that we've committed, that we carry thinking that we are unworthy, do you understand that there is no place for that guilt in your life anymore? 
that Christ has paid your debt and that you are now free to walk in the newness of life that he has provided for you? See, this is the thing that stuck out to me the most in studying this passage this week and last week is that the one thing that the Jews thought that the old covenant could do, it couldn't. The one thing that they thought it could do, it couldn't. And that was to save them and perfect their conscience. But it merely, all it did, as you read there, all it did in, the ver- in verse 10, I believe, all it did, it says, but it only dealt with food and drink and various washings, regulations of the body. All it did was change the outside. It did nothing for their heart. They went to the temple They presented their sacrifices for their sins, and then they left unchanged. Because it wasn't perfect. It pointed to the one who was, but that wasn't going to atone for their sins. And my question is this morning, and how many of us in here today is that? Some of you come Sunday after Sunday doing and saying the same things over and over. And yet you leave here still feeling the same guilt and shame of your sin that you felt from the moment that you walked in those doors. All you have done is merely change the outside and how you look and how you perceive by other people. But deep down, you still carry the same burden and the same sin that you have for years. Well, let me tell you something. This building, my preaching, and your good deeds won't ever save or perfect you. It won't ever save or perfect you. You can try all the good things that you want on the outside, but deep down, if you do not have the blood of Christ poured upon your life, you will continue to carry the guilt and shame of your sin forever. See, we have been harping on the Old Covenant over the last several weeks, and ultimately the message of every sermon has been the same. The Old Covenant shows that the temple and the priests were unable to save, but they pointed to the one who could. If you don't understand Hebrews, as many of us said here this morning, I don't always understand Hebrews, but here's this. Here's what Hebrews is telling us in every single chapter. Jesus is greater. He's greater than the Old Covenant. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than the, one, the, the men who came before him. He is the one. Do we remember what I said two weeks ago? That Christ came and saved us from the uttermost to the uttermost. He saved us from the uttermost to the uttermost. And that's important for us to understand this morning. That regardless of whatever sin it is that you walked in these doors with this morning. It could be the most hideous, 
nastiest, disgusting sin that you have ever thought of. And let me tell you this, he has saved you from that. He can save you from that. And when he saves you from our sins, he saves us to the uttermost. He saves us completely so that we don't have to keep going back to the tabernacle to offer a sacrifice day in and day out for all the sins that we've committed. When he saves us, he saves us completely. His sacrifice was perfect. It was once and for all the sacrifice that we needed. And this old covenant that existed at this time, remember why I said it was weak and useless, but it wasn't without purpose? The purpose of all of this right here and all the priests that were involved in this, the purpose was to point us to the one that could save us. And in Christ, what did he do in this heavenly throne room? He went past the outer courts. He went into the holy place. He made a sacrifice for us on the Ark of the Covenant so that we could be perfected. He not only abolished the old covenant, he went and fulfilled it so that we could be saved from our sins. So my question to you guys today is simple. What is keeping you from experiencing this new covenant salvation? What is ultimately weighing you down and keeping you from experiencing the presence of God? I think the answer is simple. I believe it's ourselves. If you're an unbeliever in here this morning, let's say you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've never trusted him with your life. You've never, you haven't made that commitment to the saving power of Christ. Because some of us in here that have that thought think to ourselves that our sin is too great. You believe that you're undeserving of God's grace. You think that his mercy is out of your reach because of the sins that you've committed. Well, let me tell you, brothers, 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from some unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. What does that all include? Every one of your sins. No matter how bad you may think they are. And for the believer in here that is still struggling with shame and guilt of past sins, because I know that there's some in here, You think that your sins of your past were so great that you still can't experience the newness of life that God is trying to offer you? Yeah, you know that God has forgiven you, but you can't forgive yourself. Let me tell you something. Get over yourself. That's pride. Your standard for sin is not higher than what God's is. What that guilt is, is that's false guilt. Good guilt for an unbeliever drives us to repentance. False guilt as a believer drives us to death because it separates us from the truth that God has forgiven all of your sins. 
And the fact that you can't forgive yourself shows that you don't trust God with your sins. So I'm here this morning to tell you to don't let the enemy lie to you and tell you that you are unworthy to come into the Holy of Holies because of the sins that you've committed. Because, brothers and sisters, if you are a believer in here this morning, your sin has been paid. Psalm 103.12 tells us this, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I have a little sermon clip. Daryl, you want to play this? This is a sermon clip from Paul Washer that I heard this week that I feel like is just beautiful. So see, your problem is that you're really not recognizing your weak. Or you recognize your weak, but you just stay there in your weakness. The thing is, your weakness ought to drive you to God every time. But here's the problem. Let's enter in with your heart condemning you and Satan helping your heart condemn you. See, I have found so many people. I saw someone last night and I dealt a long time with them. Precious little girl. She recognized her weakness. She recognized her frailty. She recognized her sin. She recognized there were some things in her life she couldn't overcome right now. But here was her problem. She would see her sin, and because of the work of the devil, and sometimes our own heart condemning us, she would put herself in the penalty box every time that she sinned. Well, you can't go to God right now. You can't just keep running back to Him. I mean, you sinned yesterday and you repented and asked for forgiveness. Now you've done the same exact thing today. I mean, you run back to Him, you're just a hypocrite. You don't appreciate God. You don't have a high view of God. What do you think? God just hands out pardon to everyone? And isn't that what we do? And isn't that what we think? We sin, a sin that we've already sinned and already repented of, and because of it, we think we need to put ourselves in a penalty box for a little while at least, a couple of days, and try to work our way back into favor before we come to God. Because if we, th we think, actually, you mean if I go back every time I do this, just immediately... Not only going back and asking for forgiveness, but expecting forgiveness. Isn't that hypocrisy? Isn't that a low view of God? Isn't that treating God as a forgiveness machine? No, it's being biblical. It's what poverty of spirit is supposed to do to us. Now again, I'm not preaching this, hopefully, to unconverted church people who are going to say, wow, if God's that good, I'll sin all the time and just go back and ask for forgiveness. Hopefully I'm not talking to people like that. Hopefully I'm talking to genuine Christians who really want to be something they are not yet. 
But when they find themselves frail and they find themselves weak and they find themselves sinning the same sin, they kind of huddle over here and wait. Maybe read their Bible a few days, pray some more, show God they're really sincere before they run over there and actually try to get some forgiveness. No! One of the great joys of my life is when I discovered that the moment I sin the sin I always sin, my first response ought to be to latch a hold of Christ and not beggarly, not thinking, oh, here I am, you ought to strike me down. But no, I latch a hold of Christ saying, I believe your promises. I am in a different realm. I am free. I am a saint. I've been moved out of Adam and condemnation and law. All of it was paid for on that tree when he died. He knew all of it. He forgave all of it. I'm free. It's absolutely spectacular. How many of us is that? We think that we have to try to go through this tabernacle way of cleansing ourselves before we can go into the presence of God. And we forget that Christ has taken care of all of that for us. He has went into the holy place. He has made that sacrifice. He has sprinkled that blood on the mercy seat so that now we can go to him at any time and anywhere with whatever sin, time after time after time after time. It's not just a once a year thing that we have to do anymore, but it is available to us every hour of every day. And we think that we have to walk in this place and we have to walk around this world like we are perfect people. And we think that the only way that we can overcome the sin that we keep struggling with time and time again is to just change the outside and not let anybody know that we're struggling with it and not bring it to God because I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I go to Providence, I can't, I'm not allowed to sin. I'm not allowed to have struggles. I'm not allowed to have problems. And we forget that Christ went before us as our forerunner and took care of that so that we could go to him time and time and time again. James Bryan Smith once said about his view, our view of sin, he said this, he says, by shifting the focus away from myself and onto Christ and his love for me, I have noticed that everything comes into view. When the great Martin Luther was suffering under the weight of guilt from his own sin, his spiritual director, John Haas Stoppitz, told him this. And it's what I'm telling you this morning. Martin, quit looking at your sin and start looking at Jesus. Brothers and sisters, stop looking at your sin this morning. Start looking at Jesus, the one who paid the debt for your sin. This morning, we have an opportunity to come forward in communion. To see the representation of what was done for us 
on that cross for our sins. And this morning, I hope you understand what this means. I hope you understand that whenever he said this is his body broken for you, that you understand that what happened on the cross, he took care of. His body died in our place. And as you partake this morning of the juice, you understand that it was His blood that was shed for you on that mercy seat so that your sins would be atoned for for eternity. And when we come forward this morning and we partake of communion, it is a time for us to remember what he did. And we do not partake lightly. We do not come forward this morning as just an outward sign of something that we're doing. And as we come through communion line, we say, look at me, I'm a Christian because I'm taking communion. That's not the point. This is a representation of what has been done for us and the cleansing on the inside that his blood has done in our place. So that our sins, great or small, however we want to rank them, have been paid for. And the guilt and shame that we carry for those sins have been erased. This morning, before we do this, I want us to take a moment to bow in prayer. Christ tells us that if we confess our sins, he is just to forgive. Some of us need a time of confession this morning. Some of us need a time where we go to God and we lay out what it is that we've been holding on to for so long. Confess it. And he is just. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for delivering us from our sins. Father, I don't know what was confessed to you this morning. But Father God, what I do know is that those sins that were confessed to you, you have taken care of. Father, I thank you for your son that went before us to die in our place to the fullest 
so that we may enter into your presence under his righteousness. And Father, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would just continue to take advantage of that. Lord, that we not think, ever think, the, think that we are undeserving. Lord, we don't believe the lies of the enemy. But Father God, we come to your throne room, not flippantly, but Father God, in an attitude of reverence, understanding, Lord, that we come forward to our Father, who is standing there with arms open wide, ready to forgive us, so that we no longer have to carry this burden of sin that we've been carrying. Lord, let that be our attitudes. And as we go forward this morning and partake in communion, Lord, let us remember the sacrifice that was made in order for us to have that opportunity to enter into your presence. God, let our minds be cleared of the guilt and shame that, carry, that is on us, Father God, and allow your freedom to ring true in our minds and most importantly in our hearts. Father, for anyone in here today that has never trusted their life with you, God, I pray, Lord, that they could experience this newness of life that you provide for us. And Lord, as they come forward here, this communion, Father, for, maybe for the first time, Lord, that they would understand what you have done for them. God, thank you for your son. Thank you for his blood. Thank you for his body. We ask all these things in his holy name. Amen.